Good morning. <laughs> nice to see you all. Great to see you all this morning. Um, in 1992, there was a farmer. He lived in Suffolk, England. His name was Peter Watling. Uh, it's actually not far from where I grew up in Suffolk, England. And he was out working the fields one day and he'd lost his hammer while out in the fields. So, um, being English, I understand this. He went to great lengths to find his hammer. Now, you might think, well, he could have just gone and bought another hammer. Well, you know what? Hammers cost money. So he, uh, he went and he asked a friend of his who was a, a metal detector. He had one of those machines, you know, could uh, detect metal. He said, hey, would you help me? I've lost a hammer. It's in my uh, top field up here. Would you come and spend some time? So, so this buddy of his, his name was, uh, let me pull this up here, Eric Laws. So Eric and Peter, they went out one day with this metal detector to try and find Farmer Peter's hammer. Well, they'd been out there a while, you know, kind of going across the field where he thought he'd lost it. And suddenly a, a, a sound goes off and they think they've found something. And they look and it turns out it's this spoon, a silver spoon. And upon closer examination, they realize this is no ordinary spoon. This is quite an old spoon. This spoon, in fact, looks like it may be hundreds of years old. So they carry on and they find a couple more spoons. And then they find some gold jewelry. Again, that looks to be very, very old and very, very rare. So they actually start around the same area. And uh, then they come across some coins, some gold and silver coins. And when they dig them up and they examine them, they realize these aren't coins that they've ever seen before. These are coins that date back to the Roman times. And suddenly, this farmer and his buddy with his metal detector realize, you know what? This is no ordinary find. We found something here that actually could be quite valuable. So they get in touch with the authorities and they say, listen, you know, uh, I, I own this field and I was out looking at my field. I found some stuff that I believe may be um, of archaeological interest. So uh, they got in touch with the British Museum and the British Museum sent a team out to excavate this field. And they spent many days there working through, and, and they didn't just find a few odd coins here and there. In the middle of their search, they came across what was, uh, the, the, the British Museum actually called it a treasure trove. That was its official name. They found a treasure trove. Now, this treasure trove turned out to be a case that was full of gold and silver coins and necklaces and jewelry and, and all these different beautiful things. You can see it right there. Everything that was in that trove is on display today in the British Museum. What they realized, these archaeologists, is that this was probably someone's valuables from literally thousands of years before that they buried in a field for safekeeping with the intention of going back and digging up one day. And for whatever reason, that one day never came. And that remained buried for thousands of years until Peter lost his hammer. And there it turned up. Now, uh, you Americans, being descendants uh, of a, a colony of Great Britain, will be excited to hear that it turns out that despite having found it in their field, British law states that all such treasure belongs to the crown. Something I think is very fair, don't you? I think that's, uh, I think actually a few hundred years ago, that's why you kicked us out of here because of that kind of mentality of, hey, it belongs to the crown, all right? So we're like, you know what? We don't like that. America's going to be its own colony. So, but fortunately, fortunately, 
the Trevor, the, the Trevor, the treasure trove, it's like a tongue twister, the treasure trove reviewing committee, there is a treasure trove reviewing committee, I'm sure there's one here in Washington as well, but there happens to be one there in England, and the treasure trove reviewing committee, they decided that the farmer and his friends should be rewarded with the value of that particular trove. So that trove bought for this farmer and his friend with a metal detector two and a half million dollars. Two and a half million dollars worth of treasure in his field. And today it's called the Hoxney Hoard. It's on display in the British Museum. And do you know what sits right alongside in the museum on display? Peter Watling's hammer. They found that as well. The archaeologists, they found his hammer. And that has also been kept by the museum and is on display. So right now there's a, a bitter lawsuit going on because Peter really wants his hammer back. So he's suing the museum and... I'm just kidding. For two and a half million dollars, I think he was happy to say, hey, keep the hammer. I don't want it anymore. Two and a half million dollars worth of treasure buried right there in his field. And when I heard that story, I got to thinking about it. Imagine being that farmer. Imagine being that farmer, owning that land, maybe scraping to make ends meet, working hard, you know, toiling the fields. He probably gets up real early and works real late just to make a living, completely unaware that he is actually the owner of millions of dollars worth of treasure buried in his field. And as we launch into this new series, we're going to go for the next few weeks. It's called 66 Words to Live By. 66 Words to Live By. You see, there is a very famous prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to uh, look at it here in a second. And I think probably many of you know it. But there are 66 words in that prayer. And I happen to believe that many of us know that prayer off by heart. But it's like that treasure. We're unaware of the the value of the words of that prayer. They're buried deep inside of us, and we don't realize the treasure that we have in our possession. Something that could change our lives, and we don't even realize it's there. Something that's old and familiar, so much so that many of us have overlooked it. Although it's so old and so familiar that we could probably recite it from memory without even, even thinking. So we're going to do that right now. We're going to recite it from memory. And for those of you who need a little bit of help, I'll put it on the screen as well. But if you don't need to look at the screen, you can cover your eyes and you can show off and say, no, I know this off by heart. And it goes like this. Our Father, come on, say it along with me if you know it. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. How many of you, you may have peeked at the screen, but how many of you this morning, you knew the words of that prayer off by heart? Anyone here know the words of that prayer? Many of you across the the room here this morning. And maybe you knew a variation. I know for some people they use the word trespassers instead of debtors. And uh, there could be a slight different variation of the way you said it. But basically, the context of that prayer, at some point, you learned growing up maybe as a child. For me, the school I went to in England, the elementary school, grades K through 5, we had to say that every day. 
We had, to, we had what was called an assembly. We'd get together and we'd sing a song and then a teacher would maybe read a Bible story to us or maybe tell us uh, a lesson that would kind of help us be better students and better pupils. And then at the very end of the assembly, all together, all us kids, we would recite that prayer. And believe me, as a seven or eight-year-old, I was just doing that like parrot fashion. I didn't know what the words meant, but I'm like, forgive us our sins as we forgive those sins. And it was just saying those words. And maybe some of you, that was the same. You, you said that prayer over and over again, not really ever thinking about what the words of that prayer happen to mean. But what if we don't know what we've got? What if this boring, dated, mundane to us could actually be life-altering? What if the 66 words of that prayer could change our lives? You see, in these 66 words, Jesus lays out a complete picture of what it looks like to live a better way every day. Jesus is who taught us this particular prayer. And in this series, 66 Words to Live By, I want all of us to to discover that something we may have taken for granted actually has tremendous value. You see, the Lord's Prayer was a response by Jesus. He looked around at the daily activity of the religious people and he saw that what they were doing was really only to make themselves look good. It wasn't really changing the world in which they lived. Jesus saw what we we read about in the Bible. They're called Pharisees and Sadducees. They were the religious leaders of the day. And he saw a lot of religious words and a lot of piety, but not much action. So in response to that, and these people, you know, they would stand in public places and pray out loud. Jesus said, listen, don't don't look that way. Listen, let me tell you how you should pray. Let, Let me really break it down for all of you, not just the religious hierarchy, for every one of you. Let me let me bring it to its simplest form here for you today. And let me show you how to pray. Because essentially, the Lord's Prayer is Jesus saying, listen, if you want to see change, in yourself, in the world, let's start with prayer. We don't often think of prayer as revolutionary, especially that particular prayer that we all know so well. But I love this quote from a theologian whose name was Daryl Johnson. He says, to pray the Lord's Prayer is to participate in heaven's invasion of earth. That's what prayer is. It's heaven's invasion of earth. And we get to participate in that when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Jesus knew that this prayer was something that even though most spiritually immature, even somebody who had very little faith or no faith could understand. And it's the same today. You know, as I was studying for this message, I discovered that um, a most recent survey, and there's lots of surveys out there, but the most recent one I could come across shared that just under three in five Americans pray daily. That's a lot of people praying on a regular basis. In fact, that's actually more, I think, than we would see Americans in church on a regular basis. So more Americans are praying on a regular basis than maybe even are attending church. Now, I get that. I'm sure some of those prayers were, that test is today. Oh, Jesus, please, please help me remember everything. I didn't realize that test was today. I thought it was next week. Or they drive into the, that really important job interview and the traffic's, oh, Jesus, please let every light be green. I, I know that there are all sorts of prayers that go up, but there are Americans who are praying regularly. And, you know, I even think that people who don't know how to pray There come points in our lives where where that's what we default to. That's what we turn to. 
Kate and I and some friends uh, last week went to see the movie Gravity. Anyone seen that movie yet? Yeah, I was praying through that whole movie. I was like, oh, this is scary. And I'm not going to give it away for you now because I know some of you are like, Dave, don't tell me what happens. I want to still see it. So, but there was a really interesting line in that movie because uh, the lead character, Sandra Bullock, you know, she's, she's facing um, uh, this scary situation. She may die. And uh, at one point, I think she realizes that her life could very well end. And as I was watching this movie, this profound line came across and I thought it was really interesting because I thought that's the heart of many um, American people, many people who, who aren't in church on a regular basis. And in that moment of, 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 she was scared, this is what she said. She said, no one will mourn for me. No one will pray for my soul. I've never even prayed. Nobody has taught me how. As I heard that character in that movie saying that, I thought, you know what? I know this is just a movie, but I know people like that who, who would say, well, no one's ever taught me how to pray. I want to tell you, as we focus on, on this prayer through this series, you know, if you're here this morning, maybe you're visiting, maybe you're new to this, maybe you're new to church. Prayer is just you speaking with God, who I believe is present always, always with us, always around us. There's no special position you have to get into. Some people choose to kneel, and that's great because that helps kind of keep your focus, but you don't have to kneel. Some put their hands together and close their eyes, but again, you don't have to do that. Some, they drive to work, and all the way there, they're like, Jesus, and they're talking. You may have sat next to them at the lights and thought, well, they look a bit crazy. They're not. They're just praying, okay? They just sat there, just chatting away in the car just by themselves. Anywhere you are, it's just talking to a God who loves you so much that he wants to hear what's going on in your lives. So the question I want to look at this morning is, how can this prayer really change anything? A prayer that we've all heard of before. So what I want to do is I want to look closer at this prayer. It's found in one of the books uh, in the New Testament that tells the story of Jesus. It's called Matthew. And it's found in chapter 6. And Jesus starts in this particular um, part of the Bible teaching. He says, this then is how you should pray. Now, he's at a point here. It's, it's actually called the Sermon on the Mount. You might have heard that phrase before. It's a section in the book of Matthew. There's about three or four chapters. And it's Jesus just standing on the side of this mountainside teaching people. He's teaching them all sorts of things. How you should pray. How you should give to those that are in need. What your attitude should be like. Lots of really practical teaching. If you want to read some real practical teaching from Jesus, that whole section there in, in Matthew chapters 5, 6, 7, it's the Sermon on the Mount. And you can really read through that in detail. But I love this because he starts out when he starts talking about prayer saying, this then is how you should pray. Do you know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, now listen, you should pray. Let me tell you why. He doesn't say, okay, I want to spend a little bit of time here telling you about the power of prayer and why it's so important and why I think every one of you, again, don't forget, these aren't religious people he's speaking to. These are just the crowds of those days who had heard about this Jesus, this great teacher. Many of them very non-religious people. And they're like, what are, you, what are you talking about? And Jesus doesn't even say, listen, you should pray this. He just says, when you pray, this then is how you should pray. He makes that assumption. Listen, prayer's great. So let me tell you how you should pray. And he starts out that famous prayer by saying, Our Father, which art in heaven. What Jesus was saying here is that you can start out that prayer by saying, Father. The, the translation there is, is Abba. That's the Greek word. Which is like the very first expression of a child calling out to his father. It was a very personal and intimate use of the word father. It was like, Daddy. 
Jesus said, listen, when you start out praying to God, I know you've seen some of these, these religious leaders and they're very, oh, God Almighty, King of kings, Lord of lords, heaven above. And, and they've made him very. But listen, Jesus says, when you pray, you can start and say, hey, hey, Dad, Father, because God's looking for that personal, intimate relationship with you. Jesus was freeing them up at that point to say, you can call him Father. You can start out your prayer with the words, our Father. And even this morning, if, if, you're, if you've grown up in an environment where you're like, yeah, but Dave, you know, when I think father, that's actually a bit of a negative connotation. I didn't have a great example of a father. When I think of father, that, that takes me to a, a darker place in my life because of my particular situation. Maybe my dad was absent. Maybe my dad wasn't a good father. But even if that's you, and I'm sorry that you went through that growing up, even if that is you, I know that just like me, you know that there there is a desire within you for what's good in a father. That even if your experience of fatherhood wasn't great, you still know what a father should be like. And Father God is like that. That's why Jesus says, call him Father, because he is everything you've ever imagined that a great father should be. So he starts out by saying, our father, which art in heaven. And then he goes on to say, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. That's, that's really helpful for us here this morning because hallowed's a word that we probably use on a regular basis, right? I mean, probably already three or four times. I bet there were some of you in the foyer this morning going, oh man, have you had these donuts? They are hallowed. They're awesome. Have you checked out this? This is hallowed coffee. It's just as a word we use all the time, right? Of course not. Hallowed is like, what is this word? Well, let me tell you what hallowed means, because many of you, like me as a kid, probably said that dozens and dozens of times when you prayed that prayer, not really understanding what it was you were praying. Hallowed be thy name means to make God holy. Holy means to set apart or declare as sacred. In very down-to-earth terms this morning, it means to worship and to worship every day. One of the basics to live in every day as a Christ follower is everyday worship. It's worshipping God every single day. Now you may be thinking, whoa, hold on, this is my first time here this morning, and you're telling me I've got to come back tomorrow and the next day? Every day I've got to go to church? Well, that will be a bit of a problem. I think they've got Jim here tomorrow, so um, we, uh, we can't really allow church every day. But you see, that's where we make the mistake. We assume that worship is church. No. Now this morning in church we have been worshipping. But we can worship God every day throughout our regular lives. We actually need a bit of a paradigm shift in how we think about worship. Worship is really about what we value. In fact, this is probably the simplest definition I can give you to worship. Worship is our response to what we value the most. It's our response to what we value the most in our lives. Let me unpack that a little bit for you, maybe help you here this morning with some, some examples of that. Um, how many of you have heard of what uh, we call a word cloud? Any of you heard of that? It's kind of a, a web thing, an internet thing. You might have seen them on web pages, on blogs. They have them quite a lot. And basically what it is, is it, it takes a collection of all the words in a particular website or a particular blog, and it puts them all together in what it calls a word cloud. So every one of those words appears in that cloud. And if there's a word that's used more frequently than another, that word gets bigger. So if that word was used ten times and another word was only used two times, the word that was used ten times will be a lot bigger than the word that was used two times. So let me give you a few examples. Here's, here's a word cloud of Martin Luther King's speech, um, I Have a Dream. 
You can see, I mean, quite clearly some of the words there that were the most powerful words in that speech. Without any surprise at all, dream is a huge word. Together is a huge word. But basically, the biggest word in that particular speech, the word that was said the most, is freedom. And it's great looking at those because you can see in Martin Luther King's speech, really, what was the most important part of what he was talking about. It was freedom. So I thought I would experiment a little bit, and I'm, a, uh, I'm on Twitter. If you want to follow me, you can. I'm at Dave Jane. So I took my last four years of tweets, and I created a word cloud, and uh, this is everything I've said in the last four years put into a word cloud. So I appear to be uh, quite a happy guy, because I've got great there. It's quite a large word. I'm obviously talking a lot about what's going on today. I was really excited to see that Casey played a very part, large role in my, uh, my dialogue over the last four years. Casey's my lovely wife, um, and I can see a couple of my kids are up there as well, Ben and Emma, and I'm sure Will's there somewhere, but I couldn't actually see Will, who's my third kid, so don't tell him that he did feature quite as much in the last few years as, as Ben and Emma did. But, uh, but that's, that's obviously what's been important to me over the last four years. Now, I did another one. This week, Casey's actually going to be out of town for a few days, so I'll be home alone with the kids, so I'm in charge of cooking uh, meals for the kids. So I thought what I'll do is I'll go back through all the years that I've been in charge of having to prepare meals for the kids when she's been out of town, and I'll put all those meals together in a word cloud, and I'll see which meal turns out to be the favorite thing that I've cooked out of all the meals that I've cooked. So let's have a word cloud of all the meals I've ever cooked. Excellent. So uh, you can see how these word clouds work. Um, really, that's, uh, I think salad's in there, but it's really small, so you can't see it. It's, it's at the back there. But, um, but what these word clouds do is they show us the most important thing in a, in a particular. So, so if I was to take what you spoke about this last week, every word you said, or what you did this last week, and we made a word cloud for you this morning, what are the words that will be the biggest? Which word would show up the biggest on that screen this morning? Because that'll really kind of help show you over this last week what you've really felt was the most important thing in your life. Because that's probably the thing that you value the most, at least this week anyway. So what do we value the most? We may value a person, we may value an object, we may value experience. It might be a relationship, a dream, friends, status, stuff. It could be any kind of pleasure. Whatever name you put on it, it's the thing that is of greatest worth to you. It's our response to what we value the most. And, you know, some of you here this morning might say, well, Dave, I think family, and that's great. I'm not saying that these things are wrong, but some of us, if they're the most important things in our life, and God himself doesn't appear on that, we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit more about how that could get us into trouble. You know, some of the purest forms of worship are actually found outside the walls of a church, and they have no reference to God at all. Let, you, let me show you some examples this morning of some amazing worship that didn't happen at church at all. A few years back, Katie and I went to see a concert at Soldier Field, uh, a small band called U2. You may have heard of them. They're from Great Britain. Um, now, that's a picture of us at the stadium. Let's pull up the next picture. This is a picture of the crowds during the concert. There they are. Do you see them? Just arms raised, singing. They're worshipping. Let's take a look at this picture here. Maybe you're more familiar with this worship. Have you seen that going on on a Sunday afternoon? Like, yay, the Bears. A couple of Bears fans here this morning. So, Maybe it's around the football fields. We've got some football players here this morning at Connect Church, some of our Washington Panthers. Great to see you guys. There was some, some worshipping that went on on Friday night. So. 
You know, if you weren't there at the game, they actually really gave us a treat because up to now they've won all their games really easily. And I think the crowd was starting to get a bit bored watching. So they thought, you know what? We'll kind of make it a bit more exciting here. All the way through the first half, we'll, we'll make it really close. But then in the second half, we'll just go right back to how well we play. So good job, guys. Great win Friday night. But you know, it's not just in the church that we see worship take place. It's the football field. It's concerts. Why? Because we're made that way. We're made to worship. And we're made to worship every day. But what happens is that we consistently make the mistake of worshiping the creation instead of the creator. The Bible says it this way. All things were made by him and all things were made for him. We've been created by God to worship God. And because of that, there's this internal, it's like a homing device inside of us, riveted deep down within our soul that just longs for our maker. It's like an internal Godward magnet that is constantly pulling us to worship. We have this imprint on us of God that instinctively knows that there is something we must attach to, something we must fit with, something that we belong to. It's like we were born with this craving just to worship. So the question this morning is not whether we will worship. We can't not worship. It's who we are. The question is who or what will we worship? And I don't know what it is for you this morning, but ask yourself, what is it that I worship? What is it that I value the most? If you were to follow the trail of my life, my affections, my time, my money, my energy, my allegiance, what would you find at the end of that trail? And once you figure that out, there's a natural question that follows. Is what you are declaring, what we are declaring to be of greatest value, really worth worshipping after all? Is it really worthy of our life's devotion? You know, I talked about it earlier that maybe it's family, maybe it's a career, and and none of these are wrong. But the danger is that when we make that the most important thing in our life, that, that God himself isn't even as important as that, those things will let us down. There will be times where those things will let us down. But God, if we worship him the most in our lives, the Bible says he will never, ever let us down. I've never experienced him let me down in my life. I got to hear an interview recently at a conference I was at, and Tim Tebow, the football player, was being interviewed. And um, as always, he was going through this whole, you know, not sure what his career was going to do, where he was going to go, and it was all up in the air. And they said, you know, life must be so hard for you. He goes, well, to be honest with you, it's not, because football's just a game. And I think the crowd were a little bit disappointed that that was his response, that it was just a game. But he said, no, 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 don't get me wrong. When I'm out there, I give 110%. I mean, it's everything I've got on the field. But to me, it's not the most important thing in my life. God is the most important thing in my life. So if I get let down by a football team or a a, a franchise, whatever it may be, God's still there. He hasn't let me down. Yeah, I play hard and and yeah, we love our families and yeah, we want to work hard at our careers and we want to do the best we can in every area. But if that's the most important thing, if that's more important than God, we're in danger of that letting us down. And then the thing that was the most important thing in our lives is pulled away. That's why God says, hey, listen, worship me with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul. Worship me every day. There is one who is worthy of worship. When we say, Father, we are affirming that at the heart of the universe, there is not only an ultimate power, but there is someone who created and rules the universe that loves us like his kids. Knowing that and living with that can change you every single day. That's why when we say, our Father which art in heaven, it's followed by, hallowed be thy name. 
Our Father needs to be distinguished apart and set apart from everything else we have because His love for us, the wisdom that He gives to guide us, that deserves the highest value in our lives. So, let's finish off here this morning by asking, what does that look like in our lives? What does it look like for you and me to worship God every single day? It's a great question to ask. And I'm going to grab this prop here to help answer that question. This is a, a mirror, a little handheld mirror here. And uh, you all know what a mirror's for. A mirror's for, uh, yep, still look good. It's, uh, it's for checking out, you know, looking in the mirror. Some of you spend a few minutes in front of that mirror every morning. Some of you spend several minutes in front of that morning, mirror each morning. Some of you spend hours in front of that mirror every morning. Um, I get in trouble sometimes. I'll come down and my wife will say to me, have you even looked in the mirror? And it turns out that the shirt I'm wearing doesn't go with the jeans I'm wearing, you know. So, but the whole purpose of looking in that mirror every time is to make sure that we're happy with what we see. Because the mirror's not going to lie. What the mirror shows you is exactly who you are. You could leave the house this morning thinking, I look great. But that mirror's going to tell you whether you really look great or not. It doesn't matter how great you think you look. That mirror isn't going to lie to you. That mirror is going to tell you the truth. And the truth is that we... I like mirrors. We reflect what we value the most. So we could be saying, yes, I love God. He's the most important thing in our, my life. But actually our lives are like a mirror. And people see in us what is the greatest value in our lives. If it's God, people will see that in us. If it's something else, they'll see that in us as well. God wants us to be like a mirror that reflects him everywhere we go. I read this phrase, it says, you have a mirror soul that reflects what it is that you worship. The bottom line is that the reflection will always be what you value the most. There's no hiding it. We're all worshippers. We were all created in the image of God and created to respond to God with these mirrored souls. There's even a verse in a a book in the Bible called Corinthians that, that talks about this. It says, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, we're being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is in the spirit. Right there, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory. That's, that's how God's made us, to reflect him to others. And we get to choose how much of the reflection of God people see in our lives by how much of him we worship on an everyday basis. Like I said, the first part of this prayer that we've been talking about this morning is our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Jesus is starting out this prayer with worship. He's leading us to follow lives of everyday worship. Everyday worship means just this. That we value our Father's love. We value his guidance on a moment-by-moment basis above all else. Everyday worship means that we value our Father's love and his guidance on a moment-by-moment basis above, above all else. You know, the way I, I can kind of comprehend this the best in my mind is to picture a, a pie chart. You guys are all familiar with a pie chart. And um, as, I'm, as I'm sharing this, some of you are going to think, yeah, I do that. And what we do is we tend, to, we tend to divide our life up into segments, into pieces of the pie. So there's our, our work slice, maybe our school slice, maybe our family. This is the time we spend with our family. And some of us, we have a slice of the pie that we call God or church. 
And some of us this morning are sitting here thinking, Dave, you'd be impressed at the size of the pie, the size of the slice. I mean, I bet there are some people in here, they've got really small slices of the God pie. Mine's huge. I mean, I've got like almost, maybe a third, like a third. And you're like thinking, and God's like, you know what? That's a great slice, but I kind of want the whole pie. <laughs> you're saying, but God, how's there room for everything else if I get well, that? God's like, hey, I don't want everything divided up. I want to be a part of every part of your life. I don't want you to come to church on Sunday and say, that was my God slice of the pie. Now tomorrow morning I'll go back to my work. God's saying, I want to go with you to work tomorrow. I want to be with you. I want people to see me in you at work tomorrow. I want people to see that you're different. Because that attitude of worship, that everyday worship takes place every day. Tomorrow afternoon where you're doing your football practice and you're, you're working with some kids and you're, you're, you're being Jesus to some of those kids and God is reflected in you. When you're at home with your family, God's reflected in you. That's everyday worship. Let me close out with this story just to really illustrate this the best way I know how. Because everyday worship is saying, God, I'm not going to give you a slice of the pie any longer on a Sunday or you know, a little bit of time each day when I maybe pray or read my Bible. God, I, those are still going to happen, but I want to take you and I want to worship you in everything I do. I want to see you in everything I do. How many of you guys have ever watched the show Extreme Home Makeover? And if you guys ever, every one of us watched that show, Extreme Home Makeover. So if you haven't, there's normally a, a family and uh, something tragic has happened in their lives. Maybe they have a child with a sickness or maybe uh, whatever it may be. And, and these people come and say, hey, we're going to tear down your house. We're going to send you to Disney World for a couple of weeks. While you're gone, we're going to tear down your house. We're going to get all these local businessmen and tradespeople. They're going to come in and they're going to serve. And uh, is it Ty? Is that the guy's name who's the carpenter? Yeah, he's going to come in and work his magic. Is it Ty? Am I getting the right show? Yeah, as you can see, I, I know about the show. I am uh, not a huge fan of the show, but anyway. So um, Ty, he comes in, he works his magic, and two weeks go by, and uh, the family come back, and we've seen it all week, haven't we? We've seen the house tearing down, torn down, we've seen the rooms being remodeled, but we've never seen, what have we never seen during the show? The finished house. We haven't seen it, have we? All through the show you see bits of it, but you never see the finished house. They save that till the very end of the show. So the family come back and they stand there and, and what do they put in the way so the family can't see it? The bus! That's right, the bus is right there in the way. And it's, it's, the tension's building. You've been watching this show for an hour. We're at like the 55 minute mark now and you're like, I can't wait to see what this house is going to look like. And then on three, they, they shout that phrase. Yeah, they shouted just as loud and as excited as you just did because they're all really excited about moving that bus. And they move the bus and then we see the picture of the house, right? No. You watch that show, you never... What's the very first thing you see when you move the bus? You see the family. You see their faces. And you see mum go... And just instantly break down into tears. And you see dad who's trying to be really tough. He's like... You can't believe, you know, this. And the kids are like, ah! they're like, look at this incredible house that they're going to get to play in and all this cool stuff. And do you know, they never need to show you the house. Do you know why? Because you see the house in the faces of the family. When they move that bus, you see how incredible that house is in the faces of the family. 
If I had to sum up everyday worship, it would be that. That every day where we go, people see us. If you're a Christ follower here this morning, that people see Jesus in our faces. They're like, man, there's just something about that person that makes a difference. And I think that's why Jesus started out this prayer with, with those words. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to close out. We're going to sing one more song here to finish this morning. But I'm going to ask you to do something for me. It's a um, a huge project here, a very big undertaking. So it's going to take a lot of time and energy and work on your part. But I'm going to join in with you. I'm going to do it too. Here's what I want you to do. Every morning this week, say that prayer. Find some time each morning. If you have to look it up, it's in Matthew chapter 6, if you didn't memorize it as a kid. Some of you memorize it so you can say it from memory, but start to say that prayer every morning. And as you're saying that prayer, just pay te- careful attention this week to that first line. Our Father. And think about it. Father, you let me call you Father. You're the creator of the universe and you let me call you Father. Hallowed be thy name. I want to worship. I want your name to be hallowed every day of the week. I want people to know that everything that I hallow in my life You are the hallowedest. You are the the thing I worship most in my life every day. And then next week, we'll go into the next section of that prayer. And we'll continue to pray that prayer each morning. And the second segment will come to life because we'll be praying it in a way that we never thought about before. So, Father, thanks for this morning. Thanks for this opportunity to look at maybe some treasure that was buried deep down inside all of us, that we didn't even realize how valuable it was, that this prayer can change our lives. And Lord, as we look at these 66 words over the next six weeks, Lord, I pray that it will be like treasure that we unbury and we realize as we've dug it up, Lord, that it was there all the time and it had the power to change who we are, change the world that we live in change our families and change our lives. Bless everyone, Lord. And now as we close out this morning by doing just what we've talked about, worshiping, I pray that this song would be more than just a song. We would worship you and we would take this worship into our everyday lives that this week, God, you would have every slice of the pie. In Jesus' name, amen.